This morning, as we've done the, the last two Sundays, as we've talked about this through this series, as we're studying the doctrine of God's Word, we want to start by reading together one of the stanzas of Psalm 119, a psalm that's dedicated to God's Word and studying God's Word. So on the screen, you'll see the, the verses there. If you'll read with me, Psalm 119, 89 through 96. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. As you go through this psalm, it's picking out all kinds of different things about God's Word that are precious and ways that, that we can worship God for His Word and be thankful for His Word. Even in that psalm, you saw some of the things we sang about this morning. God's faithfulness through His Word that it endures to all generations. There's a couple things that we're going to be talking about today out of that psalm. Things like, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And he's talking about how necessary God's Word is. That if I hadn't been in it, I would have perished. I wouldn't have been able to stand up under what was happening to me. The next verse, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And we see that God's Word gives life and is necessary for life. This week we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I know we we ended before you filled in your last point of blanks. And some of you that bothered all week. But um, never fear, we're going to fill those blanks in today. And so we're going to finish up necessity today and, and looking at the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. And then we're going to switch gears and look at what are some of the evidences that we can use in talking with people that, that we know the Bible is true. How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know it's reliable? How we can trust it? And so we'll look at some of those evidences today. We'll look at more of those next week. But that's a little bit of where we're going. But coming back to the necessity of Scripture, think beyond Scripture for a minute. Think to just the the physical, your physical needs. What are things you need in life to live? Water? Okay. How long? Food? We have our food meisters back there. Okay. Food, what happens if you don't eat? You starve and you, you die. Okay. This is a morbid group this morning. What happens if you don't drink? Dehydration, yes, you do die. Um, so food, water, that's it? We're good? Air, okay, air. We need air, shelter. These are things that we need. What happens if you don't get what you need? In some of those, you die. But what happens as you start to lack those things? You get weak. You get sicker, you start to need them more. So let's just take food for a minute. I have a teenage boy in my house and an almost teenage boy in my house. And we can fill them up and just stuff them full, right? And I am not kidding, 30 minutes later, 30 minutes later, I'm starving! I'm going to die! I'm not going to tell you which son does that. Um, That way I don't have to pay a dollar to the one that's in here. (laughs) 
I'm in trouble this afternoon. <laughs> but it shows we need things, right? And when we don't get what we need, we start to get weak. We start to panic. We start to crave it. At least we should. This is true physically. Today, as we, we go through the fifth absolute truth about the Bible, I want to show how that's true spiritually. We need God's Word. And so point number five on the absolutes that we've been studying about the Bible, we absolutely need to be in God's Word to know God and to live for God. We absolutely need to be in God's Word to know God and to live for God. This is the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. We need it. My definition there, the Bible is essential to a saving personal knowledge of God and ability to live godly lives in relationship with Him. And we're using words like necessary, essential, because this is what we need to live with God, to live for God, to have a relationship with God. There are no substitutes than God's Word to make this happen. Now, as we said last week, I said necessity actually is just sort of the flip side of sufficiency. Last week we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture, that God has given us all we need to live for Him. He hasn't left anything out. He's not trying to trick us. He's given us everything we need for life and for living for Him. And so necessity then says, if that's what He's done, then it's needed. It's necessary. So many times we can get into all kinds of other studies and all kinds of other books and all kinds of other resources that aren't necessarily bad, but they aren't the actual thing that's needed for our spiritual growth. It all comes back to God's Word. George Mueller wrote this, and he's writing on God's Word. And um, George Mueller was an incredible man of faith. Uh, I, I dreamed to have faith like him where he would pray and God would answer, and he would just be at peace. He'd pray about something, that a need, be at peace, and God would answer. But you get insight into where that's coming from, the necessity of Scripture when he says this. I was growing in the faith and knowledge of Jesus, but I still preferred reading religious books instead of the Scripture. I read tracts, missionary letters, sermons, and biographies of Christian people. God is the author of the Bible, and only the truth it contains will lead people to true happiness. A Christian should read this precious book every day with earnest prayer and meditation. But like many believers, I preferred to read the words of uninspired men rather than the oracles of the living God. Ouch. Consequently, I remained a spiritual baby, both in knowledge and grace. And from one of the the spiritual great men that I admire and respect, he's saying, you want to grow in God? You want to grow in your faith? You want to grow to maturity? You want to be a a man or woman that, that steps out for God, does great things for God? This is where it starts. And so today, the fifth truth is we absolutely need to be in God's Word to know God and to live for God. His Word is essential. A couple of letters in your notes. The first is we need God to reveal Himself. To, we need God to reveal Himself to us for us to know Him and know how to be saved. It's a mouthful. We need God to reveal Himself to us for us to know Him and know how to be saved. And, and the idea here is we cannot know about salvation... We cannot know the gospel. We cannot know the fullness of who God is without God telling us. Make sense? And we'll get into what we can know about God in a minute, but without God telling us, we can't know these things. We cannot find God on our own. Both because we won't, in Romans 3.10, no one seeks for God, and we can't, in Romans 3.10 as well, no one understands. We don't know the plan of salvation on our own. We can't. 
Think about the songs we sang this morning. Thank you, worship team, for a wonderful morning of worship. The words of those songs and what we believe and who God is in the gospel, do you realize that almost none of those songs we could have sung or known the information without God's word? It had to be revealed to us, and so we sing God's truths back to him in praise and worship. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and there's a number of passages we can go to. I think this one is really key to understanding the role of scriptures, the necessity of scriptures in salvation and in knowing the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. In this passage, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. We studied this a few years back. And he's reminding them now of the resurrection of Christ. He's reminding them of the gospel. And so in verse 1 it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So Paul had been there. Paul had helped many of them become saved. I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So right from the start he's saying, it's, it's the, the gospel I told you. And Paul is just repeating what he has seen and heard, what he has written down in Scripture for us 2,000 years later. And he says, and by which you are being saved, in verse 2, if you hold past, fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And again, right in verse 2, we see the necessity of Scripture holding fast to the word that he preached. And, and yes, he preached to them verbally, but that's written down for us in God's word. And, and he's saying this is the power to save. This has the power to, to help them walk with God, to not believe in vain. But then verse 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. You catch that next phrase? In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what Paul is here saying is he's reminding a church that's in trouble, that has all kinds of dissension. He's coming back and saying, remember the gospel that I preached, and here's where I got it. I got it out of the Scriptures. And, and he's probably referring to the Gospels here because he's talking about Christ's death. And he says, how are you saved? We're sinners, and you knew that, that we needed to be saved. But Christ died for our sins, and that's in the Gospels. It's in Scripture. He rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. These are things we can't know without Scripture. And so as we, most of you here are believers and have chosen to follow God, but as we're sharing with other people and we want other people to come, at some point we've got to get to Scripture. We've got to get to the Gospel, the principles of Scripture. So many times I hear in in different churches and different organizations, we want to be missional. And, I, and I'm all for going out and sharing Christ with others. I'm all for meeting social needs and helping in that way. But if we never get to the truth of Scripture, they will never be saved. And it doesn't matter how full they are, they will never be saved and they will spend eternity apart from God. The truth of God's Word, the Gospel that is in God's Word, in accordance with the Scriptures, is absolutely necessary for salvation. And so value it and value the presentation of it. Know the gospel. Know key verses for how to share the gospel. 
I, I think every, every mission trip, we've made our, our kids and the kids that were going memorize just the, the Romans road and certain key verses. They had to know Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are essential truths that allow us to share the gospel in an elevator if we have to. Just quickly to share the good news. But we've got to get there. God's word is necessary for salvation. Now, a a quick note. I put it in your notes because there's a difference here. And we have to understand when we talk about Scripture being necessary, we're talking about God's direct revelation, his special revelation. Things we can't know any other way. Now, some will say, well, you you can see God through nature. You can see God through the stars, through the ocean. And, and, and in a sense, that's true. And that's what I wanted to get here. That's called general revelation. General revelation is those things that we can know about God or be drawn to God through nature, through what he's created. Flip over to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. I just want to give us a difference between general and, and special revelation. Some of this, as I know, these are sometimes conversations people have, and I'm trying to equip you and prepare you to be able to have these conversations. But in what, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, Paul's talking about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And this is what he's, he's presented from Scripture that we can only know through Scripture. And he's saying, I'm proud of it. I'm not ashamed. And that would have been huge in their time because in, in this time period to be crucified was the, the ultimate shame. It was horrible to be crucified. It was shameful. And they lived in a shame-honor society where shame and honor was everything. And so Paul here is saying, I'm actually honored to share the gospel about a man that was crucified. And so Paul is taking an incredible stand here. But then jump down to verse 19. And and in in the the verses in between, he really chastises them for suppressing the truth and by their unrighteousness suppressing the truth. And in verse 19, he he says, but you should have known, okay? These things should have been obvious. And he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And I've had people use this passage with me to say, I don't need God's word. I I don't need the gospel. I I can go out. I I can go out tonight and look at the two stars in the sky. And um, no, there's more elsewhere, by the way. Um, What is Paul saying here? And this is is general revelation. And the idea is this. God has built into creation... He has built into what he has made enough information to where we can know there's a God. And we can know some things about his nature. We can know his power, his omnipotence. We can know his existence. We can know that he's involved in in creating things. And with that knowledge then, when we respond to it, God uses his word and the gospel to then draw us to himself. And so Paul's using an argument about those that have rejected the gospel. And he's saying, even if you had looked at the sky, you would have known there's a God and known there's a need for God. 
This is why the, this, the topic of evolution is so huge in Christian formation because they are trying to take out this general revelation. They are trying to take out that we can look around and know there's a Creator and then be drawn to Him. And so general revelation gives this, this knowledge that there is a God it also includes an innate sense of, of conscience in God's existence. Romans 2.15, we're not going to get to it this morning, but talks that God has put His law inside of us. And so there's a sense, and some, some people use the idea of we have a God-sized hole in our heart. There is something built into us when we are created that yearns for God and should yearn for God, that knows that we need God. That's general revelation. And then special revelation, God's Word, the necessity of God's Word, says this is how He did it. You're a sinner. You can't pay for your own sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. And He rose again the third day. And if you follow Him, you will be saved. And so that's how general revelation and special revelation work together. Um, I'll give you homework. Just what you need, right? Sometime this week, week... Read Psalm 19, 1 through 11. Psalm 19, 1 through 11. The whole first half of that section talks about how nature reveals God. The whole second half talks about how His Word explains God. So the two go, the two go hand in hand. General revelation leaves no, no excuses that there is a God. He's powerful. But it doesn't tell us how. That's why we need God's Word. Special revelation is needed because that's how we know the truth. You know, I, I think one of my nephews, when he was really young, um, three or four, he had watched mom drive his car. Remember this? One, one of your kids. Um, he had ro- watched mom drive his car. And so he came to the conclusion that at three or four, after watching mom drive the car, he knew how. And, and I remember getting a call one day because he had gotten in the car and, and, or gotten over the driver's seat somehow and put it in drive and driven through their garage. Because apparently at three or four, just watching something and knowing that you can drive wasn't enough to actually drive. I, I, I don't know why not. He had general information about driving, but he had no training, no direct instruction. That's the necessity of God's Word. And it gives us the details of how we're to live for God, how we're to walk with God. There's a couple other verses in your notes that, that you, can, you can read there. But I'll just read um, Romans ten seventeen, and Paul is making a case to the the he's making a case actually to believers to go out and share the gospel. He says, "So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ." And and in this section, he had just said, "How can people come to Christ if they haven't heard? How can they believe if someone doesn't go and preach God's word?" And he and he summarizes it with. Faith in Christ comes from the Word of God. It comes from hearing it, and the power is God's Word. Now again, I know most of you are saved, and, and you're saying, okay, I know this. I was saved because of God's Word. Exactly. You were saved because of the truth of God's Word. So let's know it and be willing to share that. The letter B in your notes, we need God's Word not only just to be saved, but we need it to know how to live godly lives and to actually do it. We need God's Word not only to know how to live godly lives, but to actually do it. It is as essential as food. In fact, it's more essential than food. 
In Matthew 4, 4, and the setting here is Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and Satan has come and tempting him. And we studied this in Luke as well. And, and as Satan does these three temptations, Jesus' answer is always from Scripture. And, and he's quoting, and, and in Matthew 4, 4, he's quoting Deuteronomy and he says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me repeat that because Jesus is making a really profound truth here. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus here is equating food and how we need food to live with how we need God's word to live for God. Now again, we started by saying, what do you need? And and, and a lot of you said food. Food's good. Some of you might actually have food later today and, and come back to the gym and eat together. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were trying to figure out how, where to eat. And I'm like, hey, let's fast for lunch. And I had mutiny on my hands. Four of my family said, no, we're not following your leadership right now. We are going to go eat. You're welcome to fast. Because we need food. Now, Jesus is saying, what if we took that kind of need, how much we need food, and how much we crave food, how desperate we get if we don't get food, what if we took that and viewed that as God's Word? And how much we need God's Word? Because He says, man will not live by bread alone, by food alone, by physical food, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we're seeing there how essential Jesus viewed God's Word. He said it is as essential as food. And I would argue the comparison goes on to say we need it as often as we need food. And so it's not just something I can read a verse this week and I'm good for February. Or I can hear Pastor Ron's sermon on Sunday and I'm good for the week. doesn't work with food. You're not going to be happy with lunch today for the rest of the week. So as we, as we crave food, think, do I crave Scripture that much? And be in God's Word this week. God's word helps us know how to live godly lives. It helped Jesus combat temptation, or he used it as an example of combating temptation. In James 1, 21 and 22, a passage we'll be looking at in a few weeks, the, James says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. And James is tying to how do we put away filthiness? How do we put away wickedness? We receive, and I I love his wording there, the implanted word. So that implies more than just a drive-by reading. But that we're digging in. Implanted means it has roots that are going in. We have to get serious with God's, God's word. And James says, that's how you overcome filthiness. That's how you overcome rampant wickedness. And then he adds really our point A, which is able to save your souls. And so God's word is absolutely necessary for salvation and for Christian living. And he says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And he's tying with the word with how we do God's, how we do life with God. How we live for God. God's word is necessary. And I, and I, I know I'm not going to get pushed back on it. But my question is, same thing as last week, does that reflect in needing it as much as we need food? Does that reflect in needing it as much as I need air? Or needing it as much as I need sleep or anything else? 
So here's the thing, and, and I put this in your notes, and I want you to remember this on necessity. If you're coasting with God, relying on what you already know rather than continually coming back to study God's Word, if you're coasting with God, you are drifting backwards in the current of this world. Because the current's moving, and you know if you're, if you're on a, a, a river or something with a current and you stop rowing, what happens? You stop making progress and you go backwards with the current. And, and this, is, this is the best way I can think of to help us understand the necessity. If I'm not in God's Word, I'm drifting with the current of this world. And I'm going to end up in places that I don't expect to go. I don't think I should go because that's not where I was when I stopped reading God's Word. But places that I can't go as a believer. Don't coast with God. Don't drift, but be in His Word. Five truths about Scripture. The Bible alone is the very words of God, inspiration. The Bible alone is completely without error, inerrancy. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority, the authority of Scripture. In the Bible alone, God has given us all we need for godly living, the sufficiency of Scripture, and we absolutely need to be in God's Word to know God and to live for God, the necessity of Scripture. And so that gives us an idea of our theology, what we believe about Scripture. And where I'd like to go now in the next 20 minutes today and the next week is, what are some of the evidences that the Scripture is true? So there are times I'm talking with people and I can, I can come out with my definition of inerrancy and my definition of inspiration and all these things and they're like, huh? That's still an old book. That's, how do you know it's even true? How do you know that what you have are the words of God and, and, and how, do you, how do you know you can trust it? And, and so sometimes our conversations have to take different flavors. And in those cases, it's helpful to have some evidences of why I can trust the Bible. Why I can believe the Bible. Much like Paul did in the city of Athens as he took a different approach to convincing those. He took a more logical approach to, to convince the, the hearers there to follow God. And so in, in, the, in the next two weeks, I'd like to talk about evidence for the, the truth of Scripture. And here's the thing. I'm not going to give you one evidence that will absolutely convince your non-Christian friend that the Bible is true. Instead, I'm going to give you eight. And maybe each one on its own, they'll say, yeah, I don't believe that. But what happens with, with evidence upon evidence is the weight adds up, right? And we call that the preponderance of evidence. So one piece of evidence, okay, I can see that. That's a little bit of a stretch. Two pieces, I'm like, oh, okay. Now, when we get up to eight pieces and there are more, we're just going to talk about eight, two or three today, depending on how quickly I go. But how do we know the Bible is reliable? And and there are times that it hasn't been reliable. And don't throw things. Don't, don't, let me explain. There's times that different printings or different uh, ways it's distributed have made mistakes, but we catch those. The first English language Bible to be printed in Ireland, for instance, in 1716, it, it encouraged readers to sin on more. Just a little typo. It was supposed to say sin no more. And, and so we call that the sin on Bible. <laughs> um, that, that wasn't true. That wasn't correct. We know that because we can go to the originals and say that was printed incorrectly. There, there's another Bible in 1631 that's called the Wicked Bible. 
<laughs> yeah, when, yeah, you'll love this one. When it got to the Ten Commandments, on the Seventh Commandment, it printed as that thou shalt commit adultery. That is wrong. <laughs> that is not your takeaway from today. And they caught it. In fact, King Charles caught it. And he was, he was infuriated. He ordered all copies destroyed and fined the printers whose hands had even touched the edition. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. But, but those are humorous examples where we as mankind have gotten a printing wrong. But what I want to show you is the care that we can always go back to the original documents or as close to the original documents as we can. And we'll look at some document evidence. I want to show you the reasons why we believe the Bible is true so that you can have an intelligent conversation with someone that's struggling with this. With someone that is wondering, how can we know these things? Uh, one of our elders was sharing with me that they had, they had a guest here a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the authority of Scripture. And um, the, the person just, the rest of the day was like, how do we know? How, what, what does that mean? And how can, how can we be so sure that God wrote this? And, and ask some of these questions we're going to answer. And, and so I want you to be prepared to, to answer them so you don't just have to call up one of the pastors, but you can, can, can have these conversations and understand that. So we'll do that, like I said, through a preponderance of evidence. Now, now let me give you a practical example of preponderance of evidence. Because sometimes these are things we haven't actually seen. None of you watched Paul write scripture, right? Not even the oldest among us. You didn't watch Paul write scripture. We don't have a YouTube that shows how he did it. So how do we know? And we look at different evidences. You know, a couple nights ago I heard it rained. Let's just say you were in the house working or, or, or at work, tied to your desk, working like we do to the staff here, and, and you weren't able to go outside and see that it rained. But then you go out a little bit later and you come to the conclusion that it rained. How might you come to that conclusion? Wet ground, right? Other people might have said, do you know how much it poured out here? You might have been on Facebook and saw pictures of someone at Lake Village that you don't want to see again trying to erase those pictures from your head. Now, so you see all these evidences and you come to a logical, correct conclusion that it rained. And so we're going to do that with Scripture. Now keep in mind, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So many times this world tells us as believers, you have blind faith. You have no reason to believe what you believe. That's why it's called faith. Well, do you know that that word for faith that's used there and throughout the New Testament, it actually means to believe something on the basis of reliable evidence? On, on the basis of the reliability of one trusted, either the person trusted or have confidence in the evidence? It's not that there's absolute proof, but we have confidence, we have conviction in Jesus Christ. In God, and we have conviction, con- conviction in the truth that He has given us. It's not a blind faith but a confidence in God that says, yeah, even though I wasn't there, I believe God did this. I believe God is true, and and my belief is well-founded. That is what biblical faith is. And so we'll start with evidence number one. And what I have up here is a crude, for those of you that are woodworkers, I am sorry. Um, I am not. Just a crude balance, right? And so the world is going to say... See if I can do this. 
The world's going to say that's just a, a book of fables, of myths. And so they're going to say there's no evidence for the truth of Scripture. Uh-oh. Well, okay, this might not work. Okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to set it down. Our, screw, our screws in the base, Don, have, I, I don't see Don there. The base screws have come loose, which is going to make it not work. Okay. Next week. We'll have that fixed for next week. <laughs> Usually these things work. <laughs> um, but the idea that we'll look at is, even though the world says this isn't true, and, and they're like, I don't know how you can believe this, when we start to look at all the other evidence, it'll make sense. And we have a legitimate discussion and argument with them. The first in your notes is we can look at evidence about the author. God's protection and his provision. Evidence about the author, God's protection and provision. And, and as we look through this particular piece of evidence... The idea is, who wrote the Bible, and and is he motivated to write about himself? Is there a reason why God would want to write Scripture to us? Is there a reason why he would want to be known? And so really when we start to think of God's character and who he is, and, and I'm going to come from the assumption that this world is a created world, created in seven days, and there is a creator that designed it. So God who designed this world so he can have relationship with his with the people that he created, wouldn't he want them to know him? Wouldn't he want them to have a way to, to come to him and be redeemed to him after they had fallen? And so when we think about that, and we, we, can, we can look at some verses, I think of 1 John 3, verse 1. And, and we start by really seeing God's heart for us, for his people. In 1 John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And we see from there that God is saying, I want you to be called children of God. I want you to know me so you can be called children of God. The reason the world doesn't know God, the Father, is that it did not know Him. They, they, don't, they don't follow God. They don't know other believers. I'm sorry, John is talking about other believers. The reason the world doesn't know other believers is they don't know Him. And so knowledge of God is tied into relationship with God, relationship with other believers. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus here is praying for His disciples He says, this is eternal life, that they know you. Knowledge of God through Scripture, if it's necessary, then it's necessary. And we need to know it to know God. And so if God wants people to know Him, if God wants people to worship Him, if He wants people to to be in relationship with Him, He would provide a way to make that known. He would provide a way for us to know. And so it just makes sense that God would want to have a personal record of His words, a written record, that shows how we can know Him. And I, and I get that this is more of a logical argument based on the character of God. But sometimes people will say, well, why would God even write this? He's way up there. We're down here. 
It's because he wants relationship with his created, created, those created in his image. And so he creates a way for us to know him. He, this is his primary revelation of himself to his people. It is his very words. Now, sometimes people will accept that and say, okay, I can see where if God created everything, he could then want to be known because it would be sort of weird to create everything and, and not have a part of it. But how do we know God was able to preserve this? How do we know that the Bible we have is, is actually what God said? And so the second part of evidence about the author, is there desire or motive for him to write? Absolutely. Is there ability for him to both write and inspire God's word and to make sure that we get it? Is there ability? And again, I would have to answer absolutely there's ability. God is big enough to protect his word. Is God big enough to make sure the sin on Bible didn't become the Bible of the land? <laughs> yeah. Is he big enough to make sure that the Old Testament documents were preserved and we have, uh, we have documents we can rely on to, for the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is he big enough to make sure that the right books were put in the Bible? Absolutely. Again, is he big enough to create the world? If he can create the world, he can do anything within it. But, but listen to some of these verses about his omnipotence. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And we see a fantastic verse that talks about God's omnipotence, that he created all things, but it expands that to say he's over all things. Even rulers and dominions. And, and Paul here, as he's writing to the church at Colossia, says even, even those that are the most powerful that you have on earth, God's above them. Because he created all things. In Matthew nineteen twenty six, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And he's talking about a miracle there and, and forgiving sins. But the, the bigger principle there is all things are possible with God. And so when we think of the author, if I wrote it, you might have a lot of questions about it. it because I, I don't have the ability to preserve it. I don't have omnipotence to make sure that it's transmitted right. I don't have um, this great desire to, to have all people on earth come to salvation through me. Because it won't work. I don't have these evidences of the author that we see in Jesus Christ. So he, through the Holy Spirit, controls the writing of individual books. He controls their selection. He controls their selection. He protects the message. He preserves his word. Otherwise, what's the point of even inspiration that he breathed it out? And so is God able? Yes, he is. Some of the verses we've read, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see God preserving, carrying men along to create His Word. Psalm 119, a verse we read at the beginning, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All of these verses speak to God's ability to preserve his word. We can trust the Bible we have because we can trust the God who preserves it. And so that is a powerful evidence for trusting the Bible. Evidence number two, and we'll go through these these fairly quickly. Evidence is about the nature of the Bible. So we've talked about the author of the Bible. Is, would he write to us? Yes. Can he preserve it? Yes. But evidence is about the nature of the Bible. It's uniqueness coupled with its unity. And this is where we just get into some of the fun facts about the Bible that are not true of any other book ever written on this planet. Some, some facts about the Bible. The Bible is written over a 1,500-year span. It was written by over 40 different authors who lived in different time periods and were from every walk of life. For instance, David and Solomon were kings. Peter and John were fishermen. Moses and Amos were shepherds. Moses was also a leader of his people and trained in Egypt. Luke was a physician. Paul was an ex-Pharisee and a theologian. Matthew, a dreaded tax collector. Daniel was a statesman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. These are the guys that wrote the Bible. Uniqueness. It's an amazing span. It was written from different places and times. Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah in a dungeon. Daniel in a palace. Paul in churches and prison. John while at exile in Patmos. It was written during wartime, during peacetime, captivity, under different rulers. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. It speaks of literally hundreds of controversial topics. It speaks in different moods and genres. Sorrow, joy, doubt, despair, poetry, narrative, prophecy, epistles, letters, song, law, parable. It's written to different groups. It's written by writers who for some odd reason paint their faults sometimes and write those in. Yet it contains the same underlying theme throughout the book, throughout all 66 books. It contains one story about God who is redeeming his creation to himself through Jesus Christ. The consistency is astounding because there is not one apparent contradiction that has stood the test of time. And so you have that kind of diversity, but that kind of unity where it does not contradict itself There is no other book on the planet that that is true of. This is a story of God's glory. It's a story of his work. He is the main character, not us, by the way. His glory is the main theme, not our happiness. The one true living God has revealed himself. It does not contradict itself. In fact, it corroborates itself throughout time with prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy Josh McDowell writes a story one time where um, there's a representative of great books of the Western world come to his door. And this is a collection of books that, that has about 450 works with 100 authors, 2,500 years. So, so again, it spans. And, but there's no unity of ideas. And in fact, as he writes, he, he, they spend an hour and a half talking. So the salesman comes selling. Josh McDowell invites him in. And he and his wife are talking to him. And the hour and a half they spend talking isn't about the great books of the Western world, they're talking about the greatest book. And, and Josh McDowell said, I challenge you to pick just 10 authors out of your great books there. Pick 10 authors. In fact, I'll let you pick them all from one walk of life, 
one generation, one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, and just one controversial subject. I said, would those, and Josh McDowell said to the guy, would those 10 authors agree? And the salesman paused and said, no, not at all. And Josh McDowell pushed a little bit more. Um, so what would you have then? He says, a conglomeration of ideas. It would just be all over the place. Two days later, the salesman accepted Christ. Because the Bible as compared has all those things, all these different authors, all these different times, but it tells one story and it does not contradict. To account for such an amazing book with its continuity and unity, to account for that on natural means, on luck, on, on happenstance, that would demand a greater miracle than divine inspiration. We can trust our Bible because it is so unique, so diverse, but yet it absolutely agrees. It's a book where billions have been sold over time. Tens of millions are sold every year. No other book has come close. The staying power is amazing of this book. It doesn't prove the Bible, but it's another piece of evidence. The translations it has been translated to are more than any other book on the planet. Over 2,217 languages have at least the New Testament in their language. 683 languages have the full Bible translated. Just a side note, there's still 2,600 languages that need God's Word, that don't have it. We still have work to do. But 4,800 languages have at least a portion of the Bible or translation work started. Is it really out of date? No. It's an amazing book that survives through time, through persecution and criticism. It is unique and superior to all other books. I want to get to number three today, and this is why your notes are so long. I know they're not usually that long, and some of you are very concerned. (laughs) Number three, the internal testimony. And again, like I've said before, a valid evidence is to look at what a book says about itself. The internal testimony, what does God's Word itself say? What claims does God's Word make? And, and what I want to do, and I put a whole lot of verses in your notes because I want to read those and feel the weight of them. I was going to add weight as we did, but um, it would fall apart. <laughs> but feel the weight of these. And really one of the things we want to do as we look in Scripture is to see what does one author say about the rest of Scripture? What does, um, what does Peter say about Paul? What does Jesus say about the Old Testament? We want to look at what does the Bible claim because that will help us assess whether it's true and it will help us discuss that with others. And so I'm just going to read these verses and catch how many times the Bible says, and God said, or and the Lord said, or and Yahweh said. Understand, every time the Bible says, and God said, it is making a claim that God wrote these words. So every time it says that, it's actually making a claim that these are the very words of God that is either true or not true. In Exodus, Moses wrote this. Exodus 24, 3 and 4. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. And he's speaking of the law there. And what he wrote was God's very words. 
Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. Psalm 19.7 and 8, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What was the psalmist's view of the law? That it was God's word. Leviticus 4.1 And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, and it goes on, and there's many more where it says God spoke. Exodus 17.14 Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalekak Amalek, sorry, from under heaven. Deuteronomy 31.9 Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Isaiah 1.2 Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And so Isaiah claims that what he is writing are the very words of God. Isaiah 43.1 But now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And again, the claim that God is saying this. Jeremiah 11.1-3 <clears throat> The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Hear the words of this covenant. Speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. In Joel, one of the the prophets, The word of Yahweh that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. He's saying this is God's word. What did Jesus say about the Old Testament? In Luke 22, 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And when you, t- when you have the law, the prophets and the Psalms or the writings, he's talking about the whole Old Testament saying it's all true. It's all going to be fulfilled. Matthew twenty one forty two. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? It's okay, so what's Jesus calling the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it, is, and, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 there and calling it Scripture. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that, that bear witness about Me. He's calling the Old Testament Scripture. Matthew 19.4 and 5, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And again, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2 in this case, that it's literal scripture. It's the word of God. Verses we've studied, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 3.2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's calling the teaching of the apostles the commandments of the Lord and Savior. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter here is talking about Paul's letters. This is sort of funny, but, but he calls them Scripture. 
as he does, he's talking about Paul, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Isn't that a little comforting that Peter sometimes had heart trouble understanding Paul? There are some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own disruption, destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Peter is equating the words of Paul, the letters of Paul that we have in the New Testament with the rest of Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18. Getting the weight of this? And we're not going to go with all of them. But 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul writes, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Those are two different quotes. One from Deuteronomy and one from Luke. And he calls both Scripture. You can read through the rest. There's just a couple more. But in the entire Old Testament, let's just take the Old Testament alone, there are 2,600 places where it says, and God says, where it claims divine inspiration. So here's the deal. Either these writers are all delusional or they're writing the very words of God. Don't just call this a good book. And and this is the, the same argument that Pascal and Lewis has used for Christianity. But don't just call this a good book because it claims to be the word of God. And either the authors are delusional and lying to you, or it is, and we better take this seriously. Those are our only options. Those are the options we have with what it claims. And so I think a third piece of evidence, that third one is is just as powerful as the others. Actually, I think it's more powerful. What does the Bible claim about itself? The internal testimony is that this is the Word of God. We need to stop there today. But remember the necessity of Scripture. It's necessary for salvation. It's necessary for godly living. And if we're not in it, we're coasting. If we're not in it, we're coasting. Because we know that it's true. And these are just three of the evidences. We'll look at five more next week. But we know that this is God's Word. So don't neglect it this week. Read Psalm 19. Take, take advantage of that homework. Read it the rest of the week too. But let's be a church that's committed to being in God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for being a God who wants to be known, who cares enough about us to give us a way to know You, to know about You. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, that they would seek after you, chase after you, long after you, God. That they will be in your word to search it and see if it's true, to see the need for salvation, to see what you did for us on the cross, and to follow you. Lord, I pray that for the rest of us, we wouldn't just say that the Bible is our standard of living, but it actually would be. Because we're in it and we know it and we're feasting on it, God. May we be a people of the word in your name. Amen.